coming together today. Historically, we're recollecting the uh, cremation of the Lord Buddha one week after his Parinibbana. They call it Atamibhucha, the cremation, and then the collecting of the ashes, the relics of the Buddha, and the distribution. Venerable Maha Kasapa had uh, not been present when the Buddha entered Parinibbana, but sensed or knew something was up with the Buddha, so he had already started traveling, walking with his retinue of 500 monks from where he was staying to try and get to the Buddha. And they say on the way he met one Brahmin who was carrying a very special flower. It's only, they say, a, a celestial flower, a flower only found in the celestial realms. They knew when they saw this flower in the hand of the Brahmin that something unusual had happened. So he asked about the Buddha. He said the Buddha already had attained Parinibbana. But they waited for Mahakasapa to arrive. Then they had the cremation. <clears throat> Following the cremation, they had the first Sangha council. And as we know, the Buddha had left instructions that the Dhamma, the Vinaya, was to become the teacher of monks, nuns, Buddhists, after the Buddha. So even though Mahakasapa was considered the elder, the leader of the Sangha, he wasn't considered as a replacement for the Buddha. The Dhammavinaya is what took the place of the Buddha. So it's our good fortune that Venerable Ananda, Venerable Pali remembered and recorded with the help of the other Sangha members what now becomes Tripitaka, Vinaya Pitika, Sutta Pitika, Abhidhamma Pitika. And the Sangha preserved the texts, translated them. Obviously there are some differences between the texts or the translations that have arisen over the years. Some discussion about what is genuine, what is not. The important thing is we have the body of the Buddha's teachings, we have clear flavor of what the Buddha was teaching. Everything formed around the 
or centered around the structure of the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering. And as we know, it's the similes of the elephant's footprint. So all the teachings, the practices that we undertake, listen to, reflect on, all come back within the elephant footprint of the Four Noble Truths. So whenever we're lost or doubting or uncertain about our practice, well, we can come right back to the Four Noble Truths. Whenever we're lost in speculation about the past, the present, the future, different views, we can come back to the framework of the Four Noble Truths to help us reflect wisely on whatever's arising in the present moment in our experience. It's also a living tradition we're practicing and following. So we have living masters, those who have practiced following the Dhamma Vinaya since the time of the Buddha down to the present day. And even though each individual master or teacher is given have their own particular style, character, which may be reflected in the, their approach. As long as their approach is based on and around the Four Noble Truths, then it won't stray from what the Buddha taught and it should be suitable for bringing human beings who practice following their example, following their teachings to realization of the end of suffering. So we have in the modern era Lumpur Man and then Lumpur Cha and all the other disciples provided us with a living tradition, a successful tradition that's still viable, usable in this day and age. You might call it the forest tradition. And you'll find similar similarities in forest monasteries all over Thailand, Asia, and now the world. Even though Buddhist practice has evolved in terms of language and moved to different places away from India or from Asia, you'll see and recognize various themes and ways of practice, modes of practice that occur in all these forest monasteries, practice monasteries. And as as Anjan Chah used to point out, although we all studied the scriptures to a greater or lesser extent, we've read, we've heard, it's not wrong. But when you come to train in a forest monastery, you're also training in much more direct methods of practice. It's no longer just 
reading and conceptualizing and forming views and opinions about the Dhamma, but actually developing the qualities that the Buddha said are necessary for realization. When you come into a forest monastery, a lot of what you're learning is just coming from observation, bringing up the qualities of effort, mindfulness, wise reflection, observing, learning how to do things. Often starting in a very simple way, you come into a monastery, you learn to follow a routine. There are certain things we do together. That's part of the wisdom of the Buddha is to encourage monks to spend at least part of their time together even though we might spend long periods on our own meditating, even wandering, traveling, there's also those periods when we come together for meditation, for a meal maybe, chanting, teaching, chores and maintenance. There's certain activities we come together as a group When you come into the monastery, you learn in that way. You learn how to practice as a monk in a community. We have certain standards, certain ways of doing things that we all follow along. They may vary slightly in detail from monastery to monastery, but the purpose is is clear. You're learning to gain some skill, some ability to live as a monk, to train yourself, discipline yourself, to discipline our minds, develop the qualities which help us to purify our minds from defilement. You come into a monastery, you learn simple things just like how to set up the eating hall. We put mats and spittoons down, how to look after your bowl, how to wear your robe, how to look after a kuti, keep it clean and tidy, sweep the tracks around the kuti, how to serve a senior monk, practice of a chariawata. And flowing on from these, all kinds of different duties we learn in the monastery. We learn how to chant Pali, pronunciation, the rhythm. Even though it's not our native language, we learn a basic way of chanting that we can all follow along. And so on. These are all done by observation, mindfulness, learning, remembering. Don't actually need a lot of scriptural or textbook knowledge for all of that. If you have some, it may help. If you don't, it's not absolutely necessary. But you're training yourself in the powers of observation. Obviously, if you're going to follow a set procedure for 
how you wear your robe, how you look after a kuti, how you look after your bowl. That takes observation, takes practice, effort. And the reason we do this is because it creates, brings up many of the qualities we need for the training of the mind, the heart. This ability to practice mindfulness in the present moment, to be present to what you're doing, clear comprehension, alertness, to bring up effort. We practice certain things every day. We can't just go our own way in the monastery. We have to follow certain routines, times, ways of practice. So it requires effort. You gain skills which then can be used whether you're in a group or on your own, whether you travel. The skills you learn as you train go with you. And you'll find one of the beauties of the forest tradition is if you've trained yourself, well then it's fairly easy to adapt. Say if you go to another monastery, another group of monks, you've learned the skills of how to follow a routine, do things, be mindful enough, put enough effort in that you can follow along wherever you go. Use your understanding of Vinaya and various skillful qualities that you've trained in. You can use them wherever you go. Or if you're on your own, on Tudong, you have a discipline and a way of training that you've developed that goes with you. Even if you're wandering or staying in the forest completely alone, there'll be certain practices and ways of doing things that you keep up, that you've already learned. This brings a certain stability to the mind, to the practice, certain confidence, self-esteem, understanding, mindfulness and so on. As a forest monk, you're not always spoon-fed the Dhamma. Lay people come into monasteries, they usually want to be told everything. They're always asking questions. How do you do this? How do you do that? Whether it's about their meditation or <clears throat> the way the monasteries run. But anyone who's stayed in a monastery long term realizes you don't have to ask questions all the time. You can use your eyes. You can reflect wisely on what's going on. You learn in many ways. Doesn't mean to say questions are wrong, but you're learning to develop internal skills, which are ultimately more useful than just always expecting someone to tell you the answer to, to your question or to what to do. Because we all have our own karma, our own character. There won't always be a perfect answer for some question you have. You've also got to learn from your own experience, get to know from your experience what's needed to train the mind. Obviously the purpose of this training is to understand suffering, dukkha and what its cause is and to realize the end of suffering by 
abandoning, abandoning, giving up that which causes suffering in our heart. There's a certain individuality to that, even though the teachings apply to all human beings. Some of the details will be particular to you, your character, your karmic accumulations. So we also have to learn how to internalize this ability to observe, to reason, use our intelligence, use and cultivate wisdom as we practice. Ajahn Chah used to say that sometimes you're learning to just have a conversation with yourself about what you're doing, but not in a distracted or a way that's just endlessly leading to uncertainty about the practice. The conversation is, the point of it is to resolve uncertainty, bring your mind to the present moment, resolve issues, and to bring up skillful means to see how we can deal with different mental defilements and obstacles that arise. <coughs> and these qualities are developing from day one in the monastery. You're learning, observing, observing yourself, observing the monastery around you, the people around you. To live in a monastery, you need to develop this sense of contentment, obviously, because it's a place that is very simple, sparse. We have very few personal possessions. In a kuti we stay in, we always have the reflection that one day we probably won't stay in it, someone else will, because it doesn't belong to us. It's not a house. There's, a very, there's maybe your bowl, you keep that, your robe, you keep that for a while until it falls apart. There's not much that stays with you. And there's not much in the form of distraction or entertainment. <clears throat> so it takes some wise reflection to appreciate the value of living simply, developing contentment with what's what requisites are available, appreciating the quietness of the surroundings, simplicity of forest. But it's conducive to the practice because it's encouraging sense restraint. There's not too, ma too many sense objects to stimulate desire. It's peaceful. We don't get too attached to looking at trees. It's different from the lay life where we maybe had a place where we lived, lots of possessions, friends, constantly interacting with other people and so on. So once you appreciate it, it's quite pleasant to be a bhikkhu living in the forest. There's a lot of dukkha that you've already dropped, even though it requires patience and effort to practice like this. You're already dropping dukkha, the dukkha of all that sense contact in the world, the stimulation, the confusion, the attachment that comes from it. A lot of it has dropped away already. But you keep having to reflect back to appreciate this. Why are we here? Why are we here? 
appreciate the lifestyle and the supportive nature of the lifestyle. Obviously, if you're living in a monastery, a forest monastery, and your mind goes back to a, its former way, maybe of accumulation, wanting more experiences, more connections with people, friendliness, family, relationships, and everything that we call gama, sukha, five strands of sensuality that tend to overwhelm us as lay people. If you're still seeking that as a bhikkhu, then it's a lot of suffering because there's not much outlet for it. We'll constantly be caught into discontent, dissatisfaction, frustration. <clears throat> but if we reflect, you know, read what the Buddha taught, listen to our teachers, we can see the value of keeping the vinaya and living in the forest because it's simplifying the life, our life, and pointing the mind back to truth all the time, back to itself, back to this body and mind as it is, helping us to understand the Four Noble Truths more clearly, see them more clearly. <clears throat> this applies even just say on a daily basis when you come to meditate. And part of meditation is setting up your mind, reminding yourself why you're doing it, developing a skillful attitude towards it. You might have the technique that we've been given or that we've decided is appropriate for us, a certain meditation object. We have some goals. We also have to look at our whole attitude and the way we're approaching it. So often it's worthwhile just reflecting as you begin meditation or walking to the meditation hall or whatever. You remind yourself why you're doing it, what your aims are. If you're not sure, then you go back to the basic teachings. You know, we meditating to bring up mindfulness set aside our concerns for the world, our seeking of pleasure from the world, aversion and distress with the world, We're setting all those aside, bringing up, setting up mindfulness in our minds, maybe focused on the breath. We might remind ourselves what are the Central pleasures that we've formerly been involved with that we're setting aside. Why are we setting them aside? What are their limitations, their drawbacks? It's the harmful nature of sense pleasure. Oh, it's obsessive. Greed, desire, lust obsesses the mind. Stops us seeing the truth, stops us being peaceful. That's why we're setting it aside. So sometimes we reflect, just quietly reflect to ourselves as we begin meditation on the drawbacks, the disadvantages or the harm of sensual attachment as a way just to give ourselves some strength of mind just to set aside concerns, thoughts that maybe be, might normally come up during the meditation. 
And many of the practices we do and the reflections we do are pointing these truths out to us. One interesting practice Lumpur Cha sometimes had the monks do is to, when they eat their food, the first mouthful, just chew it and then spit it out into your hand and look at it to remind yourself of the repulsive nature of half-digested food. That kind of reflection can help you in your meditation, very, very simple reflection on the unattractive or repulsive side of things that normally we get obsessed with. Food and drink, different kinds of possessions like clothes, the way we look, the beauty of the body, beauty of other people's bodies, beautiful things, requisites, possessions. You just run through the unattractive side of things. The unattractive side of the body is probably the most useful. You just go through all the unpleasant things that come out of the body, out of the orifices. The sweat, the grease, the snot, the excrement, the urine, and so on. Just remind yourself of the, the, that side of the human body, ours and other people's. If you do that every day, every time you come to sit meditation, you just run through the unattractiveness of food, the unattractiveness of the body, even if it's not your main meditation object. It just sets you in the mood of letting go. Going against the natural craving and desire for sense pleasures based around the body, sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, around food, around pleasant things that we might have coming up in our mind, stuck in our mind. I say when Ajahn Chah was in the West, somebody asked him whether he still had sex anymore. Of course he didn't, celibate. I asked him why, why he can let go of sexual desire. He made this comparison and say when you asked the person when you when you were a kid, did you used to play in the dirt sometimes? Did you used to pick your nose and eat your snot sometimes? The person said yes. And he said, Well, do you still do those things? I said, No. He said, Well, sex sexual desire is the same. If you keep contemplating the unattractiveness of the body, your body, others' bodies, old age, sickness and death. Well, gradually your mind gives up its interest, loses its interest like a child, loses its interest in certain habits, toys, ways of playing. Well, we can lose our interest in that which is repulsive. So you reflect like this, and you're starting to balance up your mind. So it's not always obsessed with the beauty, that which is desirable, and the pleasure of that comes from such desires. Contemplating the impermanence of sense pleasures. You have them, and then they're gone. 
in whatever sense object you're obsessed with, sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, the memories, the fantasies. It arises and it ceases. You have it and then it's finished, it's gone. You can't possibly keep the same sensual experience going all the time. It's of its nature, it's temporary. So when you're quietly reflecting, you're beginning your meditation, just reflecting on all the sense pleasure you've had in the past arose and ceased in the past. It's gone, finished. A lot of desire and obsession with desire for sense pleasures is based around anticipation, expectation, wanting, planning, scheming. When we're not careful, it even leads on to unskillful action, even as a bhikkhu, maybe ways to get things that are not not so moral, not so pure, so ways to get requisites, ways to conduct relationships, particularly with women, and so on. You know, your mind, if you just let your mind dwell on sense pleasures, well, it starts to leads on to actual seeking out, planning, scheming, ways to indulge. But even on the mental level, we're seeing how much we invest in the thinking about, the hoping for, the wanting of different sense pleasures. The sense pleasure itself is actually quite brief maybe, just a few seconds or minutes of something and then it's gone. But all the anticipation maybe occupied the mind for a long time. And that's part of the pull. So when we're meditating, we're dealing with that directly. We're seeing the futility of it, seeing the limitation of it, the agitating nature of it. It's stimulating, it's exciting to the mind. It's not, it doesn't calm the mind down, doesn't bring up mindfulness. It takes the mind to more delusion, more excitement. Ultimately, it takes the mind to disappointment, despair, when you can't have what you want or keep what you want. It doesn't last. <coughs> These kind of reflections are ways to prepare your mind for the practice of mindfulness and mindfulness of breathing. You can re reflect on the limitations of sense pleasures right at the beginning of your meditation just to help put you in the right frame of mind. It's the same with the other tendency towards aversion, depression, disappointment. You contemplate the drawbacks of it, the unhappiness of the mind of aversion, whether it's just minor irritation or full-bodied rage, it's suffering. Again, the mind is not peaceful, it's agitated, stirred up. It's in our own interest to pacify the mind from its aversion, its anger, its hatred, free the mind from those states. They take away our happiness. If it's directed to another person, then when we're angry, then we're mentally kind of taking ownership of that person. They know nothing about it. 
we are thinking of them, remembering them, dwelling on them with a negative attitude, dwelling on their faults or the bits we don't like. Sometimes it goes to jealousy when they get things we don't have and so on. But our mind is taking ownership of that person, their attributes. So again, we have to practice letting go. It's nothing to do with us. They have to solve their own problems, their own suffering, just as we do. We don't have to take ownership of them. It's already enough dealing with our own karma. We can bring up the, the more skillful qualities, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. Again, one can reflect in this way in the beginning of a meditation to bring the mind back to this sense of balance, letting go of sense desire, letting go of aversion, sets the mind up nicely to put effort into mindfulness of breathing. And obviously we need effort. And the effort is the effort to establish mindfulness with the breath, to know the breath. It goes in, breath goes out. Even effort requires a certain wise reflection. We call it right effort in the Noble Eightfold Path, Samawayama. It's, it's usually sort of linked to Sati and Samadhi, and it's considered sort of part of the Samadhi factors. The effort to abandon unwholesome mental states, bring up wholesome mental states. There's also wisdom involved. Samaditi and wise reflection is right there with right effort. Sometimes we have to reason it through, remind ourselves, teach ourselves if our effort is falling off, particularly at times when we're feeling lazy or sleepy or complacent. You have to, again, use wise reflection as a way of stimulating right effort. Remind yourself that you've brought up effort before maybe and seen some results. So you can do it again, even if you're feeling tired or a bit sick or lazy. You have to re reflect on, on what's going on. Give yourself the right instructions, bring up skillful reflections at that time so you don't just wallow in the sleepiness or the laziness. Or even if you're genuinely feeling tired or even ill, not to let the dukkha waiting now overcome you. Obviously our mindfulness and samadhi is only going to deepen through effort, persistent effort, regular effort. When there's no effort, the mind just immediately goes to distraction. When there's dukkha weight in a presence, if you have pain in the body or you're feeling tired, then the mind would just want distraction from it. It's just the normal way of the human mind. 
So it requires effort to go against that habit. That effort may be supported by satta, faith in teachers and teachings, reflection on the impermanence of life. You reflect on the fact you're not going to be here so long to practice in this way and you don't know what happens after you die, where you go, what happens next, who knows. As long as the mind is still caught into suffering, there's still practice to be done. You reflect like this to bring up effort. Shake us out of our complacency. It's one thing to be sitting meditation or walking meditation. It's another, it's the actual quality of mind we have as we're doing it. And part of right effort is really investigating what is the quality of mind, the state of mind I have right now. As part of our problem as humans, you know, we're subject, unenlightened human beings subject to Sakaya Ditti, your personality view, Wichikicha, uncertainty, doubt, and then Sila Patabharamasa. We say attachment to practices, rites and rituals, external practices. Part of it is just habit. Habit conditioning. So even the practice of meditation can become something that's just habitual. You sit down and your mind is half aware, half, a, oh, half present. And we think this is it, I'm meditating. But actually the qualities in the mind are not necessarily very wholesome. There's not much mindfulness, there's not much effort going on. The body is sitting there but the mind may be sleepy, distracted, wandering dull. So effort in itself is a skill. It's a skill that we have to keep improving on, developing and reflecting on. I mean sometimes our effort is too strong so we try too hard. Push ourselves, trying to overcome defilements, hindrances with willpower can also have a an effect that's not what we want, pushes the mind into too much agitation, makes it miserable maybe, frustrated. But probably more often the effort is the effort that is of the sort that is lacking or weak. We might not be really trying to put effort to bring up mindfulness on an object in the present moment. We're just kind of sitting there, biding our time. Maybe even based on fear of what other people will say or something like that. And the purpose of meditation practice is to bring up right effort. We have to keep reflecting on our effort, reflect back on our, the fruits of our efforts, what's working, what's not, what kind of mental experience we're having. Even if the mind is full of hindrances, defilements, 
if we're making a sincere, right, developing right effort in a sincere way, it doesn't matter. Everything can be a, a learning experience. Obviously the results that we're looking at, the ability to maintain mindfulness on an object, the ability to reflect wisely on our experience, and the results that come, pity and sukha, sense of ease in body and mind, the calm, can still be a basis for more attachment and delusion, but still Ajahn Chah called the food of the heart, food of the mind. It gives us the, almost like a resting place that you can deal with some of the dukkha better by looking at it better. So particularly, say, the pain of the body. If you're developing some pity and sukha as the mind calms down because of the results of your right effort, letting go of hindrances, putting attention on an object, that gives you the spaciousness of the mind and some pity and sukha, some sense of well-being and ease that you can then contemplate pain and see pain as pain. You really develop the four foundations of mindfulness. You can really look at the body, even though it might be very boring, unattractive, unpleasant as an object. If you have some pity and sukha arising, well then you can turn to the body. You can be with painful feelings. You can be with some of the restlessness and agitation of mind because you look back at it from a place where you have a sense of ease. The more you establish mindfulness and overcome the hindrances, well, pity and sukha grows. So it gives you a taste of the happiness of an you know, enlightened person, even though it's only temporary and it can still be deluding. If you're wise to it, it gives you the, some of the supportive conditions for deepening your practice. Our attitude to how we practice is something we keep coming back to looking at on a daily basis. Our attitude to meditation, to sitting, to walking, to living in the monastery. This is part of the practice. It can help to cut through a lot of personal suffering if we develop skillful attitudes and ability to reflect on our own attitude. Then using the, the training, the Vinaya training, the monastic training as a backdrop. So tonight is uh, one prat, half moon night. We've got an opportunity to practice maybe the whole night. So I'll leave you with these reflections for now. <laughs> 